You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. We're continuing our series called Freedom from the book of Galatians. If you want to turn to Galatians 6, the first, we'll start with verse 1 and uh, through 10 verses there this morning. Several years ago, I worked with an elder who had a difficult time with the phrase, I got your back. We would say, hey, I got your back or, hey, uh, you, you got my back. And he would say, I don't do that. I don't do that. He explained that throughout his life and his career, he'd never really depended on anyone else. It was always on him. And so he wasn't going to anticipate or expect anybody to come to his rescue or to bail him out or help him out. So don't count on him necessarily to come to your rescue. He was what you might call a Marlboro man. You remember those guys? Proud of his self-reliant attitude He was not going to be bailing anyone out. And we tended uh, to tease him about that. And one thing I learned through the course of that, Marlboro man don't like to be teased. (laughs) I think we'd all agree, though, that having people in your life who have your back is really actually a great blessing. The truth is, the Marlboro man was the creation of a marketing campaign by Marlboro cigarettes, he's actually imaginary. The reality is we're designed by our very nature to connect with others. The truth is life is better with people when you know you can count on. Do you have people like that in your life? The bigger question is, are you a person like that? That people close to you, people who know you can count on. So we all have this freedom to choose to be an I've got your back kind of person. So as Paul continues this letter to the churches in Galatia, he gives two functions that provide spiritual reinforcement for others when it's most needed. And I want us to look at those two I got your back kind of functions. The first one is this, give help to other believers. Give help to other believers. Look what verse one says. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. If we're going to give help to others, to other believers, if we're going to provide spiritual reinforcement, Paul points out that one of the things we're going to have to do is restore the fallen, restore the fallen. Can I say this right up front? If you're going to restore people who have fallen into sin, if you're going to obey this directive here in Galatians 6, 1, then you're going to have to deal some, with some really awkward and messy and complicated situations because sin is messy Steve Idle used to say we needed a Messiah because sin was so messy. He called him the Messiah because he dealt with all those messes. Sin is messy. So when Paul says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, 
you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And this means that you're going to have to wade in after that fallen brother or sister, and you're going to have to deal with the mess that their sin created. And I don't know if that's been part of your life recently, but it has been part of mine, and it is a mess. It is complicated. It is very awkward. When you do it, when you wade in for the purpose of helping a brother who's fallen, it's seldom ever going to be simple or easy. I'm just giving you the warning right out of the gate. Rather than secretly gloating over a brother who is caught in a sin, you know how that happens. We share a prayer request, if you heard. Rather than gloating over them, the mature Christian is going to rush to that person's aid. The kind of sin that Paul is referencing here is a specific kind of sin. It's not a willful, defiant, persistent, or habitual sin that he's referencing. He's talking about an isolated sin. The Greek word for sin literally means a falling to the side. It has the picture of one's foot stepping off of the path into what we might call trespassing into forbidden territory. It's just that first step off of the path. Paul says You've, you who are spiritual should, and if you're using a hard text, you might want to circle that word should, restore him gently. The spiritual people who undertake to rescue the fallen brother are the people who have put aside the envious, competitive nature of the flesh. The one that says, hey, I'm going to look good around that guy, spiritually speaking. They put all of that aside and they are people who are led by the way they are led. They have led the way in developing the fruit of the spirit in their own lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Their goal is not to punish or purge or retaliate against the fallen brother or sister. Their goal is to rescue the sheep who's gone off course, who's been led astray, and to return him or her back to the flock. The word he uses there, restore, is a rich word. It means to take something that is broken or incomplete or defective and put it back into working condition. I've always been amazed at people like that who can take something that's messed up and fix it. My dad was one of those people. He would take it apart. That would terrify me. But he would take it apart and pieces all around and then eventually put it all back together and use all the pieces. We, are, we admire people like that, and yet Paul's pointing out that those are the kind of people we should be when it comes to helping someone be restored back to their relationship with the Lord. And then he says, when this is done to restore broken people, it must be done gently. A week or so ago, I went to a minister's retreat and was asked to sit on a panel for one of the sessions at the retreat. And next to me on the panel was a minister friend of mine. His name is Sam. And he was sharing part of his story as part of the panel discussion. He shared how sin that he had committed had set into motion him basically losing everything of value in his life. You see, he had had an affair while in ministry, 
and lost his marriage, his family, and his church. Eventually, he was basically homeless. For all practical purposes, he didn't have a home. And it was then that this older minister, a guy by the name of Wayne Smith, called him one day. Wayne's no stranger to this church. And he called this guy, and Sam really didn't know that Wayne and him were all that close. But Sam explained that over the months that followed that first phone call, Wayne helped him to heal from the failures in his life and then to recover so that he could be back on the path, a productive part of the kingdom of God again. When everyone else had turned their backs on him, this one minister, Wayne, said, I got your back. And it made all the difference in the world to Sam. It's hard to say where Sam might be today had Wayne not made that call. Sam was restored and he's back leading a church. And none of that would have happened had Wayne not reached out to help restore this young preacher. You can see how one phone call can change the trajectory of somebody's life when that person is genuinely looking to help restore Paul was giving a warning also at the end of verse 1, and he says this, but watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Those who are truly spiritual people should have enough humility and, and spiritual sense to remember that they also are capable of stepping off of the path themselves. You get close to sin, it is easy to indulge in sin. I often remind our staff, and I say it probably more for anyone, for them, but I say it mostly for myself, that if King David is capable of committing adultery, then all of us better have our shields up all the time because I'm not King David, and I've been around most of you. You aren't either. We need to be wise to that. It's easy. If you're not careful, you'll find yourself off the path as well. Well, there's another way to give spiritual reinforcement, to bless uh, the believers, and that is to carry each other's burdens. That's what he says in verse 2. Carry each other's burdens. Carry burdens. The way of the flesh says, every man for himself. I'm in this to get as much for me as I can. But the way of the Spirit focuses on a mutual support to help everyone reach the ultimate goal, the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes life hands the disciple such a heavy burden that he staggers beneath it. He can't carry it. It may be a doctor's diagnosis. It may be a a job-related decision. And fellow believers aren't to stand off to the side and rebuke his weaknesses, but instead we're to lean in, we're to jump in, we're to pitch in, we're to be there to help this brother or sister who is staggered underneath the weight of of their struggle. It probably won't be long before you're going to need them to help you carry a burden. It's just a wise investment. But even if that never happens, Paul says this is what the spiritual do. They carry the burdens of those who are buried underneath them. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Their past reliance, these Christians, because of the Judaizers, their past reliance on the works of the Old Testament is now replaced, Paul says, by a new law. 
It's a law, it's a law we would call the law of love. And Jesus repeatedly demanded that those who follow him must love one another and they must love their neighbors as yourselves. As David shared last week in Galatians 5.14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The distinguishing trait of the Christ follower is identified in how he or she will love and assist others. You might put a star by that and ponder later, how, how good am I at this? How, how, how well do I love those around me? My immediate family. And then the circles that kind of extrapolate out. My neighbor, my coworkers, people I don't even know. In moments like this, when the weather's terrible, these are good times to find out who really does love those around them. Well, Paul goes on in verses 3 and 4, and he says, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, I love this language, he says, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, and then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. When I was thinking about this passage and what's the investment, this spiritual reinforcement we can give to others, I kept coming back to this idea of just staying grounded. You're going to benefit from my life if I keep myself grounded. Let me give you a little bit of a review. Paul's writing this letter, remember, we've been talking about it all through this series, to address the influences of a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were legalists who required the obedience to the Old Testament law. They taught that observance of the law was the way to complete or perfect one's affiliation with Jesus. But Paul's whole purpose for writing this letter is to remind them that grace is enough. You don't have to keep the whole law. You have to be under God's grace. There's always influences that the enemy will use to try to cause us to lose our way or to get off the path that God has us on. But following the followers of Jesus who are following him faithfully need to stay grounded. We need to have a proper perspective. The Judaizers were guilty of boasting about themselves. Hey, look at me. Check out my achievements. See all the converts that I've made. They usually did this by comparing themselves with others. But these comparisons are sinful and deceptive, Paul points out. It's easy to find someone who's worse off than we are in any category of life, even spiritual categories. So our comparison then makes us look better when we're up next to them. We feel better about ourselves than we really are. And a friend tell me one time, he said, comparing yourself to someone who's fallen on the ground or who you've pushed to the ground doesn't necessarily make you any taller just their perspective is different. Verse 3 says, if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. I wish Paul would cut to the chase, get right to the point. I wish, I wish if someone thinks they're something when they're not, he says, they deceive themselves. What the disciple thinks about himself is important. 
But if he thinks he's something when he's nothing, he makes a wrong assessment. And Paul says this leads to self-deception. He deceives his own mind. You could translate this. This person destroys the fabric of the community by his arrogant indifference for the pains and the struggles of his brothers and sisters. If we're more concerned about how you see, how others see you than caring for the needs of others, there's always going to be discord in the body. Verse 4, he says, each one should test their own actions. Honest evaluation is required of every Christ follower. This inventory should help us to avoid the mistake of thinking that we are in some way something when we are really nothing. Do you have anybody in your life who you can say, hey, how am I doing? From what you know about me, does anybody have permission to speak truth to you? I'm not saying that you look actively for someone to tear you down. But do you have people like that? I'm not talking about a spouse or a sibling. Don't give them that much latitude. <laughs> I'm kidding. When there are actually have been achievements in a disciple's life that, are, that have merit and value, they should be acknowledged. We're not saying that things shouldn't be recognized and valued. The word, though, that Paul uses here for test implies that the testing would confirm the genuineness of what was tested. I think there are two questions that every entrepreneur or business owner or leader of just about anything should regularly ask themselves. And the first question is this, what's my business? We have to define, why am I in this position of leadership? What am I leading toward? What, am I, what, is, this, what is this movement or this effort about? And then the second question is, how's business? And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. When we ask ourselves, how's business as a Christian, we're kind of testing our actions. Paul's saying each of us need to evaluate how we're doing. A minister friend of mine said many years ago, I haven't done anything for Jesus today. He just blurted it out. I said, I'd keep that to myself if I were you. And what he was doing was, he was so busy that he realized about midway through the day that when he did this little inventory of his day, he realized that he hadn't accomplished any of his business. Oh, he was busy doing a lot of things, but he hadn't accomplished what he was supposed to be about. If we're going to stay grounded, we need to regularly ask ourselves, how am I doing? How's business? Verse 4 continues, he says, then, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. You know, it's easy to use comparison to others in order to increase one's own value. Our sinful nature is driven by envy and selfish ambition. And it tries to establish success by comparison with others. Jesus gave a parable in Luke, the 18th chapter, about a Pharisee and a tax collector and how the Pharisee was patting himself on the back because he wasn't a tax collector. Jesus said, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, 
And this was out loud. Everyone could hear him. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's fine to take pride quietly as long as it doesn't encroach on God's glory and it's not based on superiority over others. But don't use comparison to others as a source to increase your own personal value. Paul's saying, stay grounded. Don't find your value in comparison. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, For each one should carry their own load. Didn't he just say that we should help each other carry each other's burdens? Yes, he did. Just as there is a sense in which every person in the church is responsible for carrying the burdens of others, there's also a sense in which people must assume their own responsibility. In both verse 2 and verse 5, where he talks about bearing each other's burdens, bearing one another's burdens, bearing your own burden, Paul is careful to separate words for the separate responsibilities. In verse 2, the word that he uses here has the meaning of heavy burden, something you couldn't carry by yourself. While in verse 5, he describes something that would be probably defined as a soldier's backpack. We should help each other bear the heavy burdens of life, but there are personal responsibilities that each man and woman must carry themselves. And Paul makes the distinction here. So if we want to be people who say, I got your back, it's going to start, at least based from Paul's teaching to the Galatians, it's going to start by giving help to other believers, especially when they have need. Well, the next, next Paul points out the second function to provide spiritual reinforcement for others when it's needed is to provide blessings. We find that in verses 6 through 10, provide blessings. Look what verse 6 says. This is a kind of a interesting verse tucked in the middle of this this entire discourse. He says, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. You know what this means? He's saying, pay the preacher. Yes, thank you, brother. I heard that. There's another aspect of mutual responsibilities of the Christian was to provide for the financial support for their teachers. The consideration is more than just about an act of benevolence toward those who are leading them in Scripture. There is also in the implied recognition that this instruction was a valuable commodity. It was worthy of support. Though Paul usually exercised his freedom to preach without being paid, He stoutly defended the right of others to be paid. And I want to hit pause just for 30 seconds here and to say to you all, thank you for your generosity that you've shown to me and to our staff. Uh, We are very grateful for your faithful investment. And we have grown in that around here. And the blessing that our staff has received as a result of that investment and what it has provided to us from a ministry standpoint, but from a personal standpoint. And on behalf of all of them, I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness in that. We are very grateful. All right, verse seven, he continues. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. That's probably one of those verses you should highlight or underline in your Bible because it's a powerful, powerful verse. 
Paul's warning against deception could be translated, stop deceiving yourselves. That's a fair translation here. Then he reminds the Galatian believers that God cannot be mocked. And the word mocked here is an interesting word. It literally means to turn your nose up at. God's not going to allow you to turn your nose up at him. He wants us to realize we can't sneer at God without penalty. He says this also to affirm the next statement, which we find Paul in finishing verse 7 and going into verse 8. He says, a man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. If you're going to give spiritual reinforcement to others, then plant spiritual blessings and reap eternal life. There's an important spiritual truth that lies behind the verses 7 and 8 here. One can't sow spiritual into the spiritual sinful nature and reap eternal life. The harvest of sin is destruction, while, the, while eternal life is the harvest of the fruit of the Spirit. The primary instinct of our sinful nature is basically selfishness. If you think about it, it's all about me. Those who follow the desires of the sinful nature will be too selfish to share in the mutual responsibilities that Christians owe each other that are found throughout this text that we've been studying. Instead, they only think about their own wants and pursuits and desires. And those pursuits of those wants and desires will most likely ruin many of their lives. So Paul's encouraging that we plant spiritual blessings so that we reap eternal life. And I think we not only reap it in our own lives, but we'll see it happen in the lives of others when we make those investments. On the other hand, the primary instinct of the Holy Spirit is is selflessness, love, and service. Those who seek to please the Spirit will produce the fruit of the Spirit and will employ the Holy Spirit's virtues toward others. You might want to put a little star by that and ask yourself, am I responding to people around me, my family, my church family, my community, with the attitude and the fruit that is found in the Spirit of God? Jesus said in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. Those who seek God first, God's kingdom, will have all these things. He was talking about meeting basic needs like food and clothing and those kinds of things. They'll all be added to them in a blessed life. You'll have all these things and your life will be blessed here on earth. But Paul says even more true they will gain eternal life. God has ordained that we reap what we sow. And that truth has been obvious to every planter ever since the Garden of Eden. Paul goes on in verse 9, he says, let us not become weary in doing good. Paul's appeal here to not become weary means not to become tired or careless especially in the spiritual sense. 
So if you want to give spiritual reinforcement to others, keep doing good, Paul says. Keep doing good. When, when I'm running for exercise, and I love to run, I, that's probably the one thing about me that I just, it, it helps me to kind of de-stress and just sweat out all the bad toxins. And, but I find myself sometimes, especially the older I get, that I have this, this part of my body that's screaming out, stop, <laughs> you could walk. And uh, I often have to dig down deep because I want to finish at a certain amount of time. It's me and that clock, you know. And uh, it takes a lot longer the older I get to do the same distance. But I push through that fatigue and the pain. And I just try to keep running. I think my mindset is even if I have to slow down, don't quit. Don't quit. Paul's idea here is similar to that. He's encouraging us to keep at it. If you're, if you're doing good, don't allow fatigue or carelessness to stop you. He told the church in Thessalonica, he said, never tire of doing what is right. Keep it up. Verse 9 continues. He says, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. So if we keep doing good and we don't give up, there's a harvest that will come. And we've been praying for that harvest around here for a long time. Those who would be faithfully sowing to please the Holy Spirit may sometimes wish for faster growth or quicker rewards. But the basic truth about the end of time is that we're operating on God's timetable. To give up meant to lose heart and to not finish. The writer of Hebrews points out, if you need an example, he says, look at this example in Hebrews 12, 3. He says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus set the pace, he said. He's the example. He shows us how it's done. This word give up that the Paul uses was used to describe how a bow is unstrung. You know the tension on a bow? And he says when you give up, it's like taking the tension off and removing that cord or that string. We're finished using it. We're done. People get unstrung at times, don't they? They just want to quit. Paul says don't let that happen. Not with regard to these spiritual matters. It's worth it to push through it. Well, then he says this in verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, look around. Let us do good to all people. Let's do good for, to everyone. Instead of looking for a place to quit, he said we should be looking for another place to start. Paul wants us to maintain this holy awareness of the opportunities that God has put before us so that we might live out our lives like the Holy Spirit. The challenge to do good to all people is a natural outgrowth of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. You see, while the sinful nature, jealousy, envy, selfishness, etc., is eager to remove names from our benevolence list, our personal benevolence list, the Holy Spirit's nature, love, kindness, goodness, is always ready to add one more. 
verse 10, he completes this text with, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In addition to our need for readiness to do good to all people, Paul says there is a higher demand. He uses the word especially here. Especially. Do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Paul reminds us of the responsibility that we have as part of this family, the family of God. So I know we're thin in here this morning because of the weather, but I'd love for you to just to look around and try to make eye contact with at least one person who you think that's somebody I'm going to take care of because that's our call, to do good to one another. And you know, if you can't find one person that you know you can make that connection with, it might be because we're low in attendance today. Or it might mean because you're just not connected yet. And I want to encourage you to take that next step to get connected. Let me close with this. My daughter, Bailey, recently got engaged to a great guy, Ethan Witt, who we love and we're excited to be adding him to our family. And that's a picture of them shortly after they got engaged. Um, and we're, we've started making plans for the wedding. When I say we, I don't mean me as much as I mean others, but I'm, I'm involved, trust me. This is an exciting time and an expensive time. Now I'm involved. Um, but through this process, it reminded me of the extent that we will go for those in our lives who we love. Isn't that true? I will go to great lengths for my daughters and for my wife. They know that I'm just one phone call away. All they have to do is make that call. And I've come to realize over some time that I would go to great lengths for my son-in-law as well and my future son-in-law because they're part of this family. And being part of this family makes them important to me. And then when I think about this family, the Northeast family, and it's a big family, I wonder, are are we ready to take on that? You know, to truly show up and be that spiritual reinforcement that somebody needs in that time of crisis. I recently had... uh, a meeting with a guy who really messed his life up because of sin. And we spent quite a bit of time just talking about, you know, where he was at and the process of going to get back to where he needs to be. And there's a lot of carnage, a lot of, a lot of chaos in his life as a result. And I was trying to encourage him. But when we got finished, and this thing is all complicated, it's frustrating to me and to be honest with you, some of it's really distasteful to me. But when we finished, I looked at him and I said what I've said several times before. I just reminded him that I was there to help him. And he was really grateful for that. Because he said a lot of people had bailed on him because of his sin. And I get that. And we talked about it. I said, you got to understand what you did. It was not good. Hurt a lot of people. It's offensive to a lot of people. But there's got to be at least some of us who are going to step into that and say, well, I'm not giving up on you. This is mile 15 of this marathon. The next several miles got some big hills on it, but we're going to run it together.
Is there a group of people who you know will have your back when crisis hits you? Maybe it's not a sin in your life, but maybe it's a diagnosis from the doctor, the loss of a job, and you know these are the people who are going to kind of hold you up, keep you going forward. And you know there's another circle out there that goes out even farther. That's the rest of Hamburg and beyond. Am I available if they need me? I realize I got a lot on my plate. I'm going to do my part in that as well. And I wonder if I can count on you for your help because I know I can't do all that by myself. And you know that's true. When you show up to help someone, whether they're in your core part of your family or this church family or your neighborhood, and you carry their burdens, you change their life. You really do. When you're there to provide a spiritual blessing of some kind, it changes their life. So let's make a difference in the lives of those in our families, in our church family, and in our community here in the 40509. And in the process, we will change the world. And we'll increase the population in heaven. That's what my mission is. That's my business. I hope it's yours as well pray with me. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for having my back. We recognize, God, that people need you. And in the course of that process, they need us. And truthfully, we need them. Nobody can carry all the burdens by themselves alone. Some of them are just crushing too heavy for one man or woman to carry. So, Lord, use us to help restore those who fall, those who struggle under the weight of difficulty. Help us, God, to stay grounded. Help us to keep from comparing ourselves to others to find our value. Lord, show us how to bless our family, our church, our community. Show us how to be like Jesus and just keep doing good and not quitting on that. Lord, we want to be uh, people who got other people's back. That when the crisis hits in their life or the sin becomes known to all, that we're not going to give up on them. We're going to stay there and fight the fight. And God, bring them back to restore them or help them through the crisis or whatever the circumstance might be. Lord, in the process, we pray for this harvest to come. As lives are changed, people will surrender to you because you're the source of all this. Your spirit working in us is it's the catalyst in all of this. So use us, God. And we pray for that harvest to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.